Hey, it's Sarah. This episode with Victoria Arlen is about her remarkable recovery, going from a vegetative state for four years to the ESPN sidelines, Dancing with the Stars stage, and more. It's incredible. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, subscribe to it and you won't miss any new episodes. Also, do me a favor, take a minute and go to iTunes, rate the show and leave a review. I love to hear your feedback. Before we get to today's episode, I want to tell you about another great ESPN podcast, The Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina and Dave Damashek react to the conference championship Sunday games and look ahead to the Super Bowl matchup. You can find The Mina Kime Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. I'm Victoria Arlen, and my dilemma is I can't have a dog, and I want a dog, but my travel schedule prevents me from having a puppy. Okay, this is a tough one because I definitely don't want anyone getting a dog if they don't have the time and money and love to give it a great life. Of course, most rescue dogs would be happy to just have a bed to sleep in and a best friend to snuggle, not to mention that opens up space in a shelter for another dog to be saved. But I get it. If you're alone and you travel all the time and you have no one to take care of your pooch, then maybe now is not the right time. But don't wait too long because I think sometimes getting a dog is just the thing to teach people responsibility and unselfishness and commitment. Back when Brad was just my boyfriend, we got our first dog. We learned about that. You know, we couldn't be away from home as long. Had to go outside in the cold to walk him, pick up this poop, get the medications, go to the vet. But one dog turned into two, turned into three. And now I'm just officially a crazy dog lady. And I miss them if I'm out of town for like one day. So don't wait too long. And when you do, make sure you adopt. Don't shop. Thousands of amazing dogs, unfortunately, are dying every day. So go be a hero and get a rescue dog. And they will repay you a million times over in love, I promise. The commish has spoken. My guest today is Victoria Arlen, an ESPN host, actress, speaker, and author. She's also the face of jockey and a former gold medal winning Paralympic swimmer. On a few of the recent episodes here, we've talked about stuff like setting goals, changing your habits, not letting self-created barriers keep us from achieving things. You remember Lizzie Cutler talked about finding the thing inside you that has you convinced that you know, you can't quit the job you hate or start marathon training or find love. What have you put in your own way because you're too scared to put yourself out there and go for it? Well, this is another listen that I think is going to move you toward change and belief in yourself. In fact, I hope it's what former guest Gretchen Rubin called a lightning bolt moment. I hope when you hear Victoria's story and her resilience and her courage, you'll kind of snap out of your days. It'll inspire you to stop making excuses, remind you that you're in control of how you react to what happens to you and what's in front of you. Because Victoria was 11 years old when she fell ill with two rare diseases. She lost the ability to speak, eat, walk, move. She slipped into a vegetative state and doctors told her family she would not be saved. But meanwhile, she could hear and see everything. She spent four years in a locked-in state in her own body, completely aware of what was going on, but not able to move or communicate. So in this, we talked about the abuse that she suffered at the hands of doctors and nurses while she was in that state, her frustrating but inspiring battle to relearn how to eat and talk and walk, how she became the youngest host at ESPN and then did Dancing with the Stars just a year after learning how to walk without support. And how that experience changed her life. Victoria says in the interview, if you're ever having a bad day, just scratch your nose and imagine how frustrating it was to not even be able to do that. Yeah, that stuck with me. 
Um, her incredible, unbelievable story should move anyone who hears it and hopefully make them stop making excuses, start dreaming really big like she was, and then take the first step toward breaking down all those barriers that they have put in the way of success and happiness. I promise you guys are going to love this interview. That's what she said. So full disclosure, I've been trying to have Victoria on this podcast for at least a year and a half, I think now. I have been hounding her, and she's so busy. She's writing books and working with Jockey and working for ESPN. But I finally tracked her down, and actually the timing is perfect because uh, I love her story of reinvention, her inspirational fight back. And I think anybody out there who has a tendency to fall into the woe is me category or to feel like things are tough and they can't fight through them will be greatly served by this. And anybody really uh, hearing her story and the amazing things that she's doing now. So I'm excited to finally get you on Victoria. Um, Thank you for having me. Sorry about all this back and forth this last year. Yeah. You've been very, very busy. So I don't blame you at all. Um, And I know we could spend like a full hour just talking about your love of donuts, but I will try to. uh, I do love donuts. Yes. Focus on other things. Um, you have told your story of growing up so many times, um, but for those who haven't heard it, I think it's it's so necessary to give it the time that it needs and and really get into it. But but let's talk about before before the illness. So you're just a regular yep. kid. You're a triplet with two brothers. So tell me about yeah. what you were like as a kid. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm I'm a triplet. I've got two brothers, and I have an older brother who's six years older than me. So I was growing up, I was always trying to keep up with the boys and very competitive. Um, and just, I loved, I had this passion for sports and this passion for just kind of, kind of just going for it. Um, even at, even at a very young age, you know, at five years old, I very matter of factly announced to my mom that I was going to win a gold medal. And she was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And just was like, okay. And then she's like, you literally just walked out the room and then drew it on a piece of paper and threw some glitter on it and put it on your door. And so I think growing <laughs> up, I always just, I had just a lot of dreams and goals and aspirations, but I also had three brothers that I had to keep up with as well. So um, I really just, I loved, I loved being active. I loved kind of, I mean, and it's hard to say cause it's like up until 11, but I'd say pretty normal childhood, just very competitive. And, and I was really the kid that never got sick, the ironic thing. So, um, but yeah, just pretty normal kiddo just with a lot of energy my mom was like we always just had to try to contain you at night because I just wanted to like go 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 constantly was your family into sports is that how you got those big dreams of of the Olympics early on yeah yeah my dad um my dad was very involved in the in the hockey world and then um both coaching and playing so he he was big into that so like at the age of three all my brothers we all learned to play and and got thrown into that but my mom was a swimmer so both both my parents were collegiate athletes and my mom was a was a swimmer and so I in order to like steal her away from the boys I I took up swimming and I loved the water from a very young age and so swimming was kind of our thing her and I and so I think we we were from we were you know kind of brought up where you just play different sports and you see what you like and and um, and so sports were a huge part, I think, for, for all of us. And then even when it wasn't necessarily an organized sport, my brothers and I were still going out and just kind of moving and being active. So, yeah, yeah. sports were definitely a huge part, a of, huge uh, part of, of my family's life. That yeah. explains the tremendous success that you had later. Okay, so you're just living a normal life, keeping up with the brothers, tons of activity. And mm-hmm. tell me what happened at age 11. Yeah, so we had just come back from a trip to Disney, and um, and I woke up and I just was feeling off. But I had been having this whole the whole year prior. I'd been having um, 
had been having different random symptoms. I developed asthma. I started having um, these random fainting spells and I would get the flu or pneumonia. And so I was constantly kind of something was coming up every couple of weeks, but no one really saw anything of it because I was still, you know, doing well in sports, doing well in school. And I just kind of would get set back a couple of days and then bounce back. And so this went on for a good eight or nine, eight or nine months, almost a year. And then, um, and then we came back from a trip to Disney and I woke up and I was like, something, something's wrong. And so they thought I had, you know, a little tummy bug and then a couple of days go by and the pain's on my right side. So they're like, okay, I think you might have appendicitis. So we went to the, the hospital and they thought it was appendicitis. And then they took out my appendix and that kind of was the, the catalyst that, that started kind of the storm, if you will. And then um, within a couple of weeks, I think I lost like, I lost a significant amount of weight. So i was very kind of became very frail and not super energetic. And then my legs very quickly started giving out as well. So everything just Mm. kind of started dwindling. And I went from completely healthy to within three months, completely unresponsive. So it happened very quickly, but no one really knew what was going on. And so um, the doctors at first, if you can believe this, uh, thought I was doing it for attention and actually what? missed a very crucial crucial treatment window for these two rare conditions that at the time those they weren't they weren't very talked about so it was kind of one of those you know roulette games if you will but uh, what we learned is that if doctors don't know what's going on they tend to kind of throw the blame back at you and then it wasn't until i was completely unresponsive that they're like something's seriously wrong and then eventually put the pieces of the puzzle together and then it was kind of it was the the kind of the the ending result was this, it was a lost cause. There was really nothing they could do. Before the diagnosis, did they give your family any reason to say that they thought you would be faking? And did they talk to your family at all about who you were as a kid and a person? And if there would be any reason to believe that you would be faking this? No, like they, they tried to dive in and say, you know, does she have any issues and stuff? And my mom's like, well, no, she's afraid of thunderstorms. So they they really were kind of pulling strings at that, but yeah. they really just didn't know what was what was going on, and and especially now as as a, as you know going going past that and sitting down with doctors, they're like, unfortunately, that's kind of the cop out is to say that oh they're just doing it for attention, and right. so and there's a lot of kind of you know we're we're dealing with these big name hospitals with uh, with doctors who have significant egos, so they really didn't want to admit that they didn't know what was wrong. Um, and then like wait and later on admit. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there was no reason, like my mom was like, there was literally nothing. Like she's like, they, they couldn't, there was no grounds for it, but at the same time, they also didn't know what was going on. Was so going it was on? kind of so their attempt kind to of kind of not for everything. Yeah. So yeah, you said not, that there was a, that they don't know. There was a possibility that they could have administered a steroid early on had they been able to tell what it was, which, you know, they're they're clearly doing their best to try to figure out what's going on with you. Um, but there was a missed window that could have avoided everything. Yeah, the, uh, the there was a missed because of the so we didn't and we didn't find this out until um, 2014 that it all could have been avoided. So we, the the window of when um, the initial onset of the paralysis to the vegetative state was a crucial window where a single round of steroids probably could have stopped it completely. Um, but they, they didn't, they didn't, instead of sending me to a neurologist, I got sent to a psychologist. So it really wasn't, mm. it wasn't, if it was, if it had happened now, there's so much knowledge on 
these different neurological autoimmune conditions that you kind of know that's the first bet to do, but this was back in 2006. So it wasn't super known and super acknowledged either. Um, but yeah, the steroids could have, could have prevented it entirely. So what are the two conditions that you ended up being diagnosed with? They're called transverse myelitis and acute disseminated encephalomyelitis. So you couldn't speak, eat, walk, or move. You were in a vegetative mm-hmm. state. And you, you've said before that you don't remember the first year of that, but then you yep. woke up a year in and you were aware of everything. Yes, I was. And then at that point, it was they call it locked-in syndrome. Mm. So are you still suffering from the same condition at that point? Is your body still suffering from the same thing as it was before? Or have you recovered, but you're unable to speak and tell everybody that you need to start rehabbing and coming back to life? No, it was still going on. It was, it, it kind of, um, basically, I mean, you know, it, it, it sets off the storm and then there was just complications and issues, but it's basically brain inflammation that was really in full swing. Um, so they were still going on cause they were not fully, you know, being treated yet, but there had also been a lot of damage done as well. So it was kind of a mixture of both, but then also like, complications and things from that as well so it was kind of a mixture um but it wasn't it was it was just like slowly getting worse and worse Hmm. okay so for four years you are in this locked in state totally aware of what's going on you can hear everybody you can't move or communicate so could you see i know you couldn't move your eyes could you see when people were Mm -hmm. in front of you or were your eyes closed i could see wherever my eyes were fixed they were pretty much kind of just stuck so I could see wherever they were they were pointed at, and I could hear as well. So it was kind of wherever my eyes were, I could see. Hmm. So this is, I mean, it sounds like a nightmare. You're not sure exactly probably what happened and how you got there because you can't remember the first year. You can hear mm-hmm. the doctors and nurses talking to your family about your prognosis, and what they were saying was not optimistic, right? Yeah, no, they they were telling my parents that, um, I wasn't going to make it. And if I did make it, if there was a slightest chance I'd make it, that I would never recover. And that the Victoria they once knew, I believe they said the Victoria they once knew would never come back and that they should put me away in a home mm. and move on with their life. And I'm like, no, please don't. Oh, my gosh. But my family, I'm one of triplets and, and my family is not one to back down from a challenge. So they're like, look, as long as she's alive, she's still our daughter. And we're going to figure this out and we'll just adapt accordingly. So what do you do for four years when all you have is just <laughs> your brain to keep you company? Yeah, um, it was it, it was a struggle at first. But then I was like, look, if I'm if I'm going to be stuck here, complaining is not going to help me and, and feeling bad for myself is not going to help me. So I kind of made this epic bucket list. And then I also just paid attention to the the world around me. My dad, whoever was on Victoria duty kind of got TV duty as well. So my dad would always put the food network on and uh, there's nothing worse than watching the food network when you can't eat, but (laughs) no kidding. (laughs) Optimism. I learned how to cook. So I learned how to cook. I paid attention. Really? Like um, you, you internalized that. Oh yeah. I like, I would watch good morning America every day. So I knew what was going on in the world. Um, usually ESPN would come on at some point. So I would pay attention. I would check out, you know, what's going on. And then I was like, look, I might as well learn and stay up to date. And then my brothers, like they were where we had set up a hospital room in our living room. So I always kind of got to see the hustle and bustle and hear what was going on. Okay, So you were at home for a lot of this. 
Yeah, I was at home. Whenever I was stable, I was able to be home, and then we just had nursing care and equipment there. But I was very I was bored, so I was very much like, okay, what can I do that's productive today? So I would do, like, I figured out how to cook. I figured out what was going on in the world, and I just really tried to keep my brain going and my thoughts in the direction of, like, when I get out of here, not, mm. okay, I'm stuck here or I'm... I don't have tomorrow. I was like, no, that we're planning for tomorrow and we're planning that we're going to be one step closer. And, uh, and it was funny when I came out of it, I knew how to cook and I knew how to cut things. And I knew, and my mom was like, wait, you were 11 last time you were in the kitchen. Like you, you don't know how to, how to hold a knife. And I was like, I watched the food network for four years. I think I know what I'm doing. Oh my gosh. So, um, yeah, I just really tried to obtain as much as I could and just get, keep my brain moving. Cause I was like, I don't want to, become mashed potatoes here like I really want to keep yeah whatever I can control in check well and that's such a fighting spirit to be in there mm -hmm. and to be always thinking about what's going to happen when I'm out of here I'm learning I'm growing I'm doing whatever's possible from within here were you physically being treated a lot were were they able to figure out what might make you better was there a lot of prolonged stretches of sleep because of medicine they were giving you what was it like every day it was every day was kind of a bit of a toss up. I think there was a period of time where I was having seizures for 20 hours a day. Oh so gosh. that really kind of got in the way of a lot of being able to like chill out. But um, they were kind of pulling strings at that point, but they really didn't know what to do. So it, it varied at times. And then other times they would literally put me in a medically induced coma to try to figure stuff out. And so it kind of, it, it was kind of a, free-for-all every single day and things would get worse and then things would stabilize and then things would get maybe a little better and then get worse so it really was every day was kind of a new battleground if you will every day was kind of a new okay what are we dealing with today and how do we how do we get through get through another one so um so it kind of was a mixture of of all that because they just didn't know and and Every day that I made it through they were kind of like oh well that wasn't expected and so um <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, well, surprise. Still here. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm just stuck in there being like, I'm still here. Oh, God. So, yeah. you know, you talked to Access Hollywood about this and you wrote about it in your book that there were sometimes nurses and doctors that you felt kind of took out their daily frustrations on you because you couldn't talk or speak and they didn't necessarily think or believe that someone was in there watching and listening and paying attention. Um, can you talk about that a little? Because there's a gut instinct to be so angry at those people and it didn't sound yeah. like you were you almost sounded like you'd forgiven them for taking things out on you yeah I mean I kind of had to because at the end of the day hurt people hurt others and, and those nurses and doctors I mean unfortunately I'm not the only one I've heard since my book came out there was a lot of other stories of, of people and or loved ones in situations like that where doctors and nurses weren't the kindest because they thought they weren't there so um but for mm -hmm. for me, I mean, maybe maybe it's a little cheesy, but um, but I love cheese, so let's go for it. I <laughs> I really realized like me being angry or me being sad or me wanting to hold a grudge isn't going to help me. At the end of the day, my mom has always told me success is the best revenge, and so me living my life on my terms, doing the things that I want to do, trying to make a difference, is almost kind of setting an example that you have to kind of rise up and everybody, people get torn down all the time. People go through things all the time and, and you can choose to live in that prison of that pain and that frustration, or you can kind of break out of that because at the end of the day, they're going to still 
you have to kind of feel bad for them and be like, you know, how sad or how struggling are you that you have to hurt someone like that or be that way? And so for me, I think finding forgiveness, but also finding peace for it and being like, look, you didn't break me as much as you tried. Like I'm, I am where I am because of all that and because of rising above that. And I think having the support that I did and having the people around me and, and knowing just who I am, I, I realize I'm like, this is not, this is, this is not my fight to hold on to. This is something that I got through and I want to forgive and, and move on. So were you treated by a lot of the same nurses and doctors throughout? And when you did, you know, start to show signs that you could speak and see and that you were in there all along, were those same people treating you and reacting to this, this surprise that this person that maybe they hadn't been treating as well as they should have was, was coming out of it? No, I mean, it kind of, it, it varied from hospital to hospital. Um, I think when I did start to come out of it, there were definitely conversations that were started. But then at the same time, I was like, I just want to move on with my life. I yeah. want to move forward. I want to, I want to kind of get back to school and get back to, to living. So I really didn't want to deal with that. I really was like, let's move forward. Right. What about your parents? Yeah. Because, I mean, no matter how much they love you, the frustration, the sadness, the hopelessness maybe at times, were there moments when it was tough for them to acknowledge that you had been in there all along? Yeah, I think so. I, I think um, for them, my um, I actually was having this conversation with my mom not too long ago. She was like, we, we almost just kept telling ourselves that you were in there, even though we didn't know, but she says it was way less painful than believing that you weren't there anymore. Right. And so I think all my brothers, everyone just, just believed that I was still there, but also did it for themselves as well, because they're like, the thought of you not being there was way more upsetting than just knowing you were there. And so I think, I think there is that, I think they, I mean, my parents, my brothers, everyone just stepped up in such an incredible way. And so I think they, when they realized I wasn't there, they were like, wow, like that's really cool. And and I remembered I was able to pinpoint certain things and even my mom gave me bangs. (laughs) <laughs> and that was very traumatizing. And we, we, I gave her, I did this whole rant with her. And she's like, we're just trying to give you a haircut. And I'm oh like, you my gave gosh. me bangs. I love but it. Like, I thought you were going like, to say right, you I'm felt done. happy that she was, you know, caring about how you looked in the hospital. And yeah. instead you were mad at her. That's she gave great. me bangs. And that's another thing, too. My whole family just has a very twisted sense of humor. And so we, like, my, there was never a lack of laughter, even in some of the saddest situations. And I think that's how they coped with it as well. But also how I kind of, I was picking up on what they were putting down to. So, um, so they definitely were just remarkable throughout all of it. Yeah. So are you a medical miracle? Was there any explanation for why several years of, of this locked-in state and this extremely rare combination of conditions, you started to come back? Um, there's still no explanation. So I guess, I guess so. Huh. <laughs> or as Mama Ireland says, Jesus. Yeah, there's no, there's Jesus literally no explanation. <laughs> so how did it start? Tell me about, and were you every day while in there consciously thinking, I'm going to move my eyes right now, or I'm going to try to move my hand? Yeah, I mean, every day I was like, okay, I got to do something. Or I like really wanted to itch my nose. Often. Oh, oh my um, gosh! I didn't even think about that. Yeah, oh yeah. If you're God. having a bad day, just scratch your nose and be like, "I can do that." 
because oh. it's really frustrating when you can't. Um, oh yeah, I think I, I tried every day to do something, but then when I got, when I realized I'd gotten control back of my eyes, I was like, all right, it's go time. Like, this is your moment. And then that was kind of, I started blinking and communicating through that and then just slowly started kind of making my way back into the world and, and relearning everything. Oh my gosh. So tell me about uh, what you remember or maybe what your family or the doctors remember about seeing that eye movement for the first time and, and thinking, oh my gosh, wait. And did they think that that meant that you were in there or just, this is just her body, you know? It was, well, my mom, my mom knew I was in there because I just, I locked eyes with her and I just stared her down and she mm. was like, okay, I know those big brown eyes and those haven't, they haven't looked at me in a very long time. And so uh, she knew, she's like, I knew as soon as I saw you look, as soon as we met, as soon as our eyes locked, she's like, I knew. And wow. then she asked me a question and, uh, and gave me blink options and I, and I blinked and then that was like, that was, that was it at that point. Oh my gosh, I'm getting the chills. I can't even imagine what that would feel like for you and for her. Um, so then yeah. your optimism about, oh my gosh, I'm starting to get my body back, even in these little ways. Could you have ever imagined that you would be able to get to where you are now? Or was it at each moment, let me just get to be able to talk again. Let me just get to be able to eat and maybe move my arm. Um, how big were the the dreams or or maybe how tough was just dealing with the every single day of recovery? I think it was a mixture. I think I had big dreams, but I think just holding my head up was a feat in of itself. So I think I had to be a little kinder to myself because I wanted to just get up and go. It doesn't really work that way, unfortunately. There's muscle atrophy and, and a whole other host of things. So I think mentally it was a battle because I just wanted to be back. I wanted to be on my way doing my thing, but you, I needed my body to catch up first. So I think it was kind of a mixture of the two. Um, but it became kind of just a full-time job for me where I knew, I knew I wanted to just get there and do it and, and, and get back. And so it was kind of a battle, but I, I had, you know, I had a lot of support around me that, that, you know, we're like, okay, it's okay. Like chill out, like you're good. Um, but you gotta, we gotta take these steps before we go, before we get there. So having that balance, I'm also very stubborn and very impatient. So those, that's a bad combo when you're trying to come back from a four-year vegetative state. So having to lock those down and be able to utilize them in, in a productive way was, was my challenge. So what was the most frustrating part? Which, which um, of the things, was it trying to move your arms again or was it trying to learn how to talk I again? Just, I think just not having it like happen right away. I think for yeah. me, like I had so much I wanted to say and I had to learn every single word over again and then put words together and, and then learn how to say it clearly. Cause in my head, I knew what I was saying, but it wouldn't come out that way or just being able so to sit up again. Your brain wasn't Sorry? affected in any way in terms of your intelligence or your ability to think, but connecting that to the mouth. This is was... all the connections. Yeah. I think it was huh. making those connections. That was the hardest part and the most frustrating part because I just wanted them to work like like right away and they just didn't. So it was like finding that balance between the two. Yeah. Gosh. I, yeah. That's, that's tough to imagine that you're now retraining your brain, how to do things that you just learn when you're young yeah. and, and there's no thought. Involved. And you know, you can do it, but it's like yeah. your body's like, no, I can't. So it was like finding that and figuring that out. Okay. So it's 2010 when you start to relearn how to do all this stuff. And by 2012, 
you are in the Summer Paralympics swimming trials and breaking yes, a world a record. that is a very quick turnaround. Okay, so you just yes. said it took too long, and yet here we are. we got two <laughs> years, and we are winning gold medals and yes. breaking Paralympic world records. Uh, speed me through, I guess, those two years then. Yeah, um, they basically, the summer of 2010, my brothers decided that I should be back in the water, and I was terrified of it. And uh, they th- they literally threw me in the water. They strapped on a life jacket, grabbed my arms, grabbed my And you were in a wheelchair at this time. I was, uh, yep, I was just now, I was just figuring out how to maneuver a wheelchair at this point. And they threw me in the water and basically helped me and showed me that I can still swim. And so I just started kind of swimming as a way of like, I was very unaccepting of my wheelchair at first. So I used any excuse I could to get out of it and getting in the water was, was me not having to sit in it. So, so for, you know, both mentally and physically, it was very therapeutic for me. So I just started swimming again and starting trying to find that new normal for me. And then started kind of getting interest from coaches and saying, have you heard of the Paralympics? And I was like, no, not really. And so I was, I was just kind of swimming and, but I'm very competitive. And so that kind of itch came back. And so I went to kind of my first Paralympic style meet and immediately made trials uh, for London. So I was like, oh, this is, (laughs) this could go in a very well direction, but having a coach that's going to actually think that you in six months can make the, you know, the U S team is, is very hard to find. And so I really just kind of kept swimming and then um, found my coach. And the first words out of his mouth were, well, I don't want to just go for making the team. I want to go for winning a gold medal Mm. to which I laughed out loud, but then also was like, (laughs) wait a second. Like I like that mindset. And so he's like, but you have to put the work in. We have to make up four years of training in six months. And so basically that turned into three and a half hours a day, every single day of training. And then within the first month broke my first record. And then that kind of started that trajectory. So in, in very, very much like a year, I went from, you know, kind of trying to figure this whole thing out to literally being in the throes of it. And so it was a very quick turnaround. And I don't think I realized at the time how short, how short the timing was from coming out of the vegetative state to being on the world stage. Um, And looking back now, I'm like, that was not a long time, but it was, (laughs) it was cool because it, as a family, it was the first time everyone was just, were crying tears of joy. And so it was kind of like for all of us, like saying like, Hey, we're going to be okay. Like we're in, we're in the clear now we can, we can all take a breath because it was so drastic and crazy and, and traumatizing for everyone. And so for, to be able to turn those tears of sadness into tears of joy and being like, Holy moly, like we're here um, was really cool and kind of kept started up that path and it kept going. Well, and there's this interesting balance of, you know, what had happened with the doctors and, and their belief that you would never recover. And then to where you are, you're thinking, whatever's in front of me, like, why would I believe that? Whether that's yeah. <laughs> stuck in a wheelchair, not able to walk, not able to, you know, there's this built in, I've already done something that nobody said that I could do. So why would I let whatever this next thing in front of me is, you know, prevent me from going? So at the time, you are now obviously finding this great outlet in swimming, but you're still in a wheelchair. Um, yeah. So and that you, never, like, I could never get, I could never get over that. That was the one yeah. thing that just kept nagging me. Yeah. And you couldn't feel your legs at all. Nope. Still can't no. actually. Yeah. So, um, and your legs didn't move or do anything. There's no sort of firing going on. 
Oh, there's nothing. Did you think for that, however many, so from 2010 when you came out of the state to 2015 in November when you felt that first muscle flicker, during that time, did you think, okay, you know, I am so lucky to have survived and to be here and I'm just going to be the best and fastest and greatest wheelchair athlete and I probably will be in this wheelchair forever? No, I didn't think that. No, I think... I I mean, it sounds nice, but no, I think for me, I always was like, I'm going to conquer this entirely. I don't know Mm -hmm. how, I don't know when, but I'm going to, I'm going to prove them wrong in every possible way. I didn't, I don't like being complacent. And for me, I was very grateful, but at the same time, I was like, there's still one more box that needs to be checked off. So you got hired by ESPN Mm -hmm. before when you were still in a wheelchair, Yes. Yes. Yeah. So I had just started my walking journey, if you will. Um, My family had just opened up a paralysis recovery center. So I just, I literally had just started when I got hired at ESPN. So I would go, I'd be at work for, you know, three days then training for four days and going back and forth, like commuting from New Hampshire to Connecticut. And just, I started off in a wheelchair. So like start off, but I never was in my wheelchair on air. I was always in a director's chair behind a desk. And then about halfway through, I was on crutches and leg braces. And uh, actually, my first gig I did on crutches and leg braces were X Games. And I remember I was standing on the side of a mountain. And as I'm doing my live shot, I'm just slowly, like, tilting over one side oh. and not realizing it. So we had, <laughs> like, like a, the snow. We had like a <laughs> producer that's, like, pushing me up, like, just to make sure and, like, giving me a little crutch to, like, because I didn't want to have my crutches in the way. Right. And then uh, And then I went from walking. So it was a very, like evolving kind of year for yeah. me of like ESPN gave me a shot and it. then yeah 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 you remember so yeah um yeah it was a little crazy and then to have that happen throughout all that it was it was just funny <laughs> all my bosses and colleagues would be like oh okay so now you're on crutches oh okay yeah. so now you're okay. trying to put heels on okay <laughs> eventually you know, so. dancing which we'll get to uh but let's get back yes. to 2015 okay so you didn't okay. go to college then right you you would we're 20 when you school, got hired. Yeah, I was in school when I got hired and then finished online. My parents made a deal with me. They're like, okay, as much as you have this job, you still have to finish your degree. So I, I ended up finishing online. So I would finish work and then go to school ultimately on, on my computer. How did the ESPN thing come about? So I had started doing um, motivational speaking and um, and my agent called and said, hey, you know, ESPN wants you to come down, give a few talks, make a few appearances. And so I was like, okay, yeah, awesome. Like, that'd be so cool. And so I went down, kind of did my spiel. And one of the executives was like, have you ever thought of a career in broadcasting? And I was 19 at the time. And I was like, no, not really. But but thank you. And and he's like, well, let me like, let me give you a tour. And so I, um, I went on this tour and I got to watch a live taping of Sports Center, and it was like a total light bulb moment for me. Hmm. So I was like, whoa, I want to do this. Like, this is really cool. And so I started, uh, I started job shadowing. And every time I would job shadow, I would just meet a different executive, and it was kind of, you know, you're too young, you have no experience. Like, there was in no way, shape, or form I had a shot. Like, let's be real. And then about a year, a year or so, um this incredible executive producer and someone who I just look up to greatly was like, I want to give you a shot. And it was um, a reporting gig for the special Olympic world games that were, that we were kind of the first year that we were doing it. And so that was ultimately my tryout. 
And uh, until I was 20, trying to, and I went through this like crash course on how to be a reporter, how to hold a microphone, how yeah. to conduct yourself, and and, uh, and just kind of dove in and had some really cool people just believe in me and, and you know, helped me believe in myself. And then it just kind of started me on this path that that I I just couldn't couldn't even begin to imagine. But at the same time, I'm just I'm just so grateful. And it just ignited something completely different. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then now, now I can tell you now that I know how to hold a microphone. And um, <laughs> you look at some of my early gigs, like I think my first day on the job, I had to do a thing with Michael Phelps and he knows how to hold a microphone. And I just look right. like I'm holding a lollipop. But I love that because so many of us that got started got to get started somewhere where you'd have to really look to find the footage. And you're like, no, I think I'll just start at the Worldwide Leader at age 20. <laughs> um, so I have to ask, though, so you started out doing, I think, uh, Special Olympics coverage, right? Yes. Okay. So at, at some point, were you were you thinking, okay, I like sports. And presumably, since you caught up on your cooking knowledge and what was going on in the world, you also kept up with sports that was on the news mm-hmm. while you were... But you're still only 20 years old and you hadn't, you know, dedicated yourself to that. So how much did you have to just learn about the teams and players? And because now you're doing much more than just covering Special Olympics. Yeah, now it was kind of all around. I just I just honestly became a bit of a, a sponge and just I kept shadowing people and I kept asking questions and I kept kind of immersing myself in it and then really just asked questions. And I was very fortunate, I think, being, you know, the kid on campus as some would say yeah. um, a lot of people took me under their wing. And so I really got to learn from people and listen and, and see, okay, this is how this works. And this is how I should, this is where I should go and kind of learn about this. And so for me, it was just, it was like schooling for me. Like we, my boss always joked, he's like, it's like ESPN university. You know, so right. for me, it was, it was not just my job. I was also kind of learning and, and going to school too. So for me, it was just kind of diving, diving in kind of like what I did with swimming, where it was just an all in, like I had to just jump in and go for it. And so I really kind of did the same there and continue to do so. And, and uh, I, I mean, I was just talking to my boss about it recently. I'm like, I think I'm out of elementary school now. Like, I think I'm <laughs> in like middle school Nice. and nice. just continue to grow and evolve and, and find my voice. So it's April of 2016. It's been, I don't know, six or seven months since you first felt a flicker of a muscle in your leg, which really inspired you to say, okay, I'm getting out of this wheelchair. This, mm-hmm. you know, therapy is going to work. Um, and by April of 2016, you were able to walk, but with no yeah. sensation in your legs. Um, and yeah. that's still how it is, right? So you're walking yeah. without being able to feel your legs? Like if someone yeah. kicked you in the leg or you stubbed your toe or something, you wouldn't feel it. <laughs> Nope. And my, my foot was run over by a golf cart over the summer and I had no idea. Oh my god! Like I just had a full on conversation with someone. And then I was like, did you just run over my foot? My brother's like, whoops. And I was like, well, okay. Can you oh my get gosh. off my foot? <laughs> right. Okay. So, yeah. but how does that work? It's, it's then just like a, it's sort of like when people have a prosthetic and they're existing. Yeah. It's kind of just muscle memory, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Like that the thing is that I I give the worst answers with them like they just work. Like I don't know. I I think it's just muscle memory and I think I just learned how to walk without feeling. So I think now so it'd be more foreign to feel my legs than not feel it them. It starts out with with you in traction and other people are moving your legs. Yeah, and then it, and then we just kind of tried to find and make those connections again like with the talking and everything else too. Right. So then you go on Dancing with the Stars, which, I mean, yeah. is hard enough for people who can feel their legs and just have bad rhythm. Um, but you go yeah. on and you get fifth in the competition. 
What's crazy is I've seen almost every season of Dancing with the Stars, and you and I met before you were on that show, and I still have no idea why that's the only season I haven't watched. It was very strange. You I think <laughs> no, and it's really weird because I've seen like every season except for two, I think. Oh, and I, see how I, it is. I, I, yeah, I was so bummed afterwards when I realized you were on it. It was like, what was I doing with my life? I think it was like I was deep, deep, deep into this story that I was reporting on that spe- that I spent many months on, and I think I just like didn't have time to like even see the commercials where they said who was on it because I remember it was like six or seven episodes and I'm like wait Victoria's on this that's amazing like what's I get a going lot on? Of, I got a lot of people <laughs> being like wait you're doing that and I was like yep surprise yeah okay so yeah uh quick and dirty because we're running out of time and there's a couple of things I want to get to but tell me about that I mean the incredible amount of press that you did the physical work what was it like yeah it was a lot I mean I think it, when they asked me to do the show, my, my agent called me and he's like, can you, can you even do this? And I was like, yeah, sure. Like, let's go for it. And then my first day, um, my partner like twirled me and I fell over and I was like, I can't do this. Like, it's really <laughs> hard to dance when you don't know where your feet are. Yeah. Um, and I'd only been walking without any support for about just over a year. So it was a very quick turnaround, but I just kind of went for it. And I was very fortunate to have a really fun partner who, who was very much like, all right, let's figure this out. Let's come up with a system. And it was really fun. I mean, it was a lot because it definitely put me in a whole different level of notoriety. And I I couldn't just be in my little turtle shell anymore. Um, But at the same time, gave a lot of people hope. And I got to meet some incredible people, but also hear incredible stories as well. And it was so much more than than dancing, if you will. But but the physicality is, is rough. I mean, like I've I broke ribs, you, you, you know, your knees go and everything kind of went. Cause I, I really hadn't moved like that ever. No one moves like that. But then when you sit in a wheelchair for, you know, 10 years and then just decide you're going to dance for six hours a day takes a toll, yeah. um, but it was fun. It was amazing. It was such an incredible experience. Well, I remember Amy Purdy was one of my favorites because of the creativity around what she couldn't yeah. do with her prosthetics and the beautiful finale they had with the sort of sheets that she was like flying in the air and didn't even need her legs. Uh, so yeah. that showed us some really remarkable things in sort of elevating the stories of people like you. So you did tons of press then. You're talking to me again. Yeah. There's so much <laughs> conversation for you about what happened when you were 11. Now you're only 25. You're still a kid. Like, I can't even believe all the things that you're doing. When I was 25, I was still like, what am I going to be? And like, where where am I drinking tonight? (laughs) Um, But, you know, you have to revisit that trauma. And it's ultimately a positive story that you came out of. And it is incredibly inspirational. And your attitude seems remarkable about it. But have Mm -hmm. you acknowledged and been able to work through what it means to have to revisit and talk about it all the time? Yeah, I had to, I had to take some time after that to just kind of process all of it and also adapt to this new normal and being more out there. Um, So I think my family really rallied around me and also said, hey, we got to, we got to make sure you're good. Um, But I also, I think it's, it's all about perspective. So for me, it was learning to embrace all of that and kind of find the good and find the purpose for the pain and, and move forward with it. So it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't easy, but at the same time it was, it was worth it. And it was something that needed to be done. So I think processing it, but also being, being more open and vulnerable too, and knowing that, look, your story doesn't define you, you define, you get to defy it and and make it your own. And so I think realizing that and embracing that was really, really crucial. Yeah. Have you been in therapy at all after coming out? I I tried and it just it wasn't it, it 
I spent the whole time kind of explaining it. And then as I'd be explaining it, I'd be like, well, this is why I'm feeling this way. And this is why I'm feeling that way. And I'm very fortunate that my mom and my grandma are, are kind of my rocks and people I can talk to and, and process it with. So I, I found just that was really helpful in finding kind of my little, my, my tight circle that I could process and, and talk about too. I yeah. found that way to be way more productive than yeah. trying to explain it to someone else. Well, and it's amazing that you have those people because then you can sort of work your way through it at your own time and with people that exactly, you trust. Exactly, yeah. Um, what are the lasting effects to this day other than, you know, the lack of sensation in your legs physically? Are there things that pop back up as a result of damage that was done to your body during that stretch? Um, from time to time, I'll get little neuro, neuro flare-ups, but it's really mainly just not feeling my legs, and then sometimes they'll spasm or act up. But knock on wood, I'm very, very fortunate that I'm I'm pretty, pretty in the clear in that sense where I can kind of move on and move forward without really any super significant lasting effects. Have they used anything relating to your case, especially now that it's so high profile and you've done so much media to sort of inform how they treat similar things or even, you know, I would imagine the hospitals you were at and the people that you worked with, there might be a reckoning for how you treat patients that are in that state. Yeah. I mean, I definitely have been able to have conversations and and there's definitely a lot more knowledge about the conditions and also about treating people just with respect in in those situations. So I, I think so. I think I've, I've found, that to be very productive and, and my story has definitely helped in that sense and I think it's it's still an evolving thing um, but people are get, definitely getting treated quicker and I think people are getting treated better too which is really all that I can ask for. Yeah there weren't any issues of abuse or anything it was psychological or mental or just um, language essentially when you were dealing with the doctors and nurses? Yeah it was kind of all all the above. But there weren't, there wasn't physical abuse of you because of of you not being able to speak, or because I mean, there was, to... yeah, at a few, oh. at a few spots. God, I'm so sorry to hear that. That's just awful. And um, and I understand you not wanting to dwell in that, but um, the farther away from it that you get, the more are you maybe inspired to want to speak out about it or or do something so that that doesn't happen in the future. I think I've done a lot more of that behind the scenes. Okay. I've had yeah. a lot more conversations on that behind the scenes. I think revisiting the past publicly is not my favorite thing to do. Right. Um, but I think behind the scenes, I've done a lot of work behind that. In fact, one, you know, hospital care center got actually shut down. Um, wow. So it's been a lot behind the scenes, but that's not something I, I you know, I put out in the public. But I think right. behind the scenes, my family, myself, and people kind of around me, we've really worked on trying to create more awareness, but also just give people respect and, and support and a voice who don't have one. So that's been Absolutely. something I've done more behind the scenes, um, not necessarily in, in the public eye. Well, in your story, the book that you wrote, Locked In, um, and actually uh, Val Schmierkowski, your partner from Dancing with the Stars, wrote the forward, which I love. That, I'm sure, is a, a great resource for people, an inspiration to people who are dealing with something similar or their loved ones dealing with something similar. Uh, so you wrote a book, which is, again, you're 25. I mean, can we leave some stuff for later? <laughs> and then this clothing line with Jockey. You're the face of Jockey. Tell me about this. Yes, that was a very crazy uh 
crazy phone call, but yeah, Jackie, it's been incredible. It's been a really fun partnership with them. Um, I joke with my friends, I'm like, I get paid to not wear pants, but uh, <laughs> but it's been amazing. They they've been such supporters of my foundation. They've been supporters of everything I've been doing, and we got to create this really incredible clothing line this past fall. And so it's it's been so much fun. It's beyond what I could have ever imagined. And they're just an incredible company with such integrity and values that that I really value. And so it's, it's been a lot of fun and, and my family appreciates it. They get a lot of, a lot of swag. So uh, I was going to say my family yeah. and friends are very appreciative of that too. Well, and I just love that you're on the side of a building in your underwear, just like, I got this, like no big, no yeah, big, no one told me I was going to be on the side of a building in my underwear. <laughs> that was a surprise. And I was like, okay, yep. There and my mom's like getting all emotional. My dad's crying. My dad's like, I'm crying for other reasons. <laughs> yeah, so, it's uh, weird. You're yeah. in your undies. <laughs> weird. Um, okay. Uh, well, you look hot. I mean, geez, oh, girl. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. I mean, wow. Um, okay, so you've got the book. You've got Jockey. You just ran a 5K, which is crazy. Um, yes. Are there bigger plans for running, or is that? Are we sticking with 5Ks and turkey trots? I mean, I would like to. I just have to get my legs to do that. So I, I think eventually. I want to do a marathon eventually, but I'm still trying to get my legs legs moving. But yeah, I think so. I really want to get into triathlons and eventually an Ironman. So that's those are all pipe dreams. My little legs have to have to. They still right. have some catching up to do. Well, okay. So I, I would have to say of all the guests that I've ever had on the podcast, I am most interested in your answer to this because I can't even imagine what it is. What do you want to do with the rest of your life? Like what are the big goals, the big dreams, <laughs> the embarrassed to even say them out loud and write them down, but this is what you really want because you've already done so much. I think just continuing to to make the most of the second chance that I've been given as, as cheesy as it sounds, but I feel like um, continuing to evolve, continuing to kind of put, try to make a lasting impact and help people too is, is huge and just continue. I mean, the the beauty of it is it's like you don't necessarily know where your path's taking. You just have to enjoy the ride. And so that's kind of what I'm doing and, and trying to be better every day and, yeah. and make the most of, make the most of this, uh, this second chance. Not many people get one, so I'm not yeah, going mean, to, not going to waste it. I can't even imagine Listening to this, if I were someone that just kind of flopped my way through life and didn't go after things, because I would feel like such a lump on a log listening to all the things that you fought through and then the incredible things you're doing. I just think it's such a testament to attitude and perseverance mm -hmm. and the fact that in those years when you couldn't express it, you still in your mind were creating plans for the future and what was going to be next. And the way that we put barriers in front of ourselves for things that aren't even in the way um, and you had things in your way and you still were like, yeah, I'm going to still plan ahead. Um, it's just such an incredible lesson for people. And I can only imagine what your I, I know I heard you speak at the ESPNW summit. So I saw a bit of it. But your public speaking is just so powerful because because of what you fought. Thank through. you. Um, we could keep going on forever, but uh, I have to let you go. But before you do, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition, the 10 questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your Desert Island album? You can only have one. My Desert Island album? Uh, I don't know. Um, maybe <laughs> maybe Chumbawamba. What? Tell something. You know that song? Of like, all oh the music. That's, 
of all that's the music my jam. that's ever when that existed. Song comes on, it's just pure joy. Jumbalumba. <laughs> listen, I respect everyone's musical taste, but that will definitely, without a doubt, go down as the worst answer to that question I will ever oh, okay. get on this program. Well, <laughs> Number, no, keep memorable it. Here. You can't change it. No. Okay. Top thumpers I'm not is going your to change answer. it. <laughs> uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? What, what, qual- what, sorry? Um, habit or quality that you have that you Ooh, think has I think contributed? Being stubborn. Yeah, sounds like it yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? Ooh, I think, it, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to say in London, I didn't, I didn't podium on one event and that was, that felt pretty sad because I, I was, slated to podium on that and I ended up having a medical emergency so I didn't get to podium mm. on that. That's frustrating for sure. Yeah. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? I've ever been in a fist fight? No. <laughs> oh, actually once when I was oh, playing yeah? blood hockey. I punched oh. someone. <laughs> but it wasn't like a fist fight, it was just like a little yeah. tussle. Just a just a tussle. Just a sled hockey tussle. Those happen for sure. Just a little tussle, yeah. Um number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Oprah. Oh, nice. That was fast. Have you yeah. met Oprah? No. If I met Oprah, I think I would die. I'm amazed that you haven't. Oh, my gosh. Like, that would, that would be the day. Some my bucket list. Wow. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Most embarrassed? Oh, okay. This was when I was, like, six. My cousin and I always uh, always would do these, like, dance performances for our, our family. And one time we finished our performance, it was, like, dead quiet. And I farted. Oh, no. <laughs> really well. <laughs> and it just, like, stands out as one of the most <laughs> embarrassing moments of my life. And then I ran into a corner and started crying. <laughs> I love I how like everybody sick. farts. And yet farts are, like, almost always the most embarrassing part of people's but, life. Like, for like... that, I was, like, sick. So that was, like, the end of the world. That's funny. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve? Being patient. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good one for sure. Yeah. You would uh, think four years in complete isolation <laughs> would make you the most patient person. No, it did the opposite to me. Yeah. I'd be like, listen, I already lost four years. I got to pick things up yeah, here. Like, let's I don't go. have time to kill. Yeah. yeah. Um, number eight, if you could be commissioner of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to? Just be kind. Yeah. To everyone and everything. Number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been? Hmm. I think um there was there was one moment in particular where I was like, Ooh, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm gonna get through this and I think I was scared that I wouldn't get to say goodbye to my family. Hmm. Yeah. We went from Chumbawamba to that. Like I know. A, Listen, this is very right now. very wide ranging. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number ten, <laughs> what three words? What three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Oh, I don't know. I'm really bad at answering stuff like that. (laughs) How would you like uh, people to see you or think of you? I hope, I hope I'm nice. Uh Um, maybe goofy Mm -hmm. and, um, optimistic. Yeah. Those are very good ones. I like those okay. for sure. I think of you as cool. those things. So that works. Aw, thanks. <laughs> and finally, who should I have in this podcast? Who's someone fascinating and interesting and funny and smart and cool that I should talk to? Ooh, I have a lot of people that come to my brain. Hmm. I mean, I, I would say my mom because she's such an epic human, but she gets oh, shy. I love that. 
That's a good one. She's I a, bet she's got she's, a very interesting like, perspective, too. She's like my spirit animal. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, well, this was awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. It was amazing Thank to talk you. to you. Thank you so much. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, being dead tired at 3 p.m. and wide awake at 1 a.m. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this, because it's not like I take a nap at 3 and get rested or drink coffee and get energized. I somehow just power through, barely being able to open my eyes at like 3.15 in the afternoon, and then hours later, I'm inexplicably wide awake. How am I supposed to go to bed earlier, which is one of my New Year's resolutions so I can wake up earlier, if I have all this energy at midnight? And if I'm so tired at three, why in the world does being awake for 10 more hours seem to give me energy? Does this have to do with the tides, circadian rhythms, essential oils? I'm flummoxed. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. I'm tired right now when I'm recording this, which stinks, but I won't be later. So that's good, I guess. No? Uh, there, I fixed it. If you have a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review to That's What She Said, and leave the dilemma in your review. Maybe I'll fix it on an upcoming episode. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said. 